0: In Sunday school, we're in the book of Acts downstairs, and there's a tagline down here at the bottom that says, The Unstoppable Mission of the Church. So that's where we've been in the book of Acts. It's a fascinating book. Some people call it Acts of the Apostles. Some people call it Acts of the Holy Spirit. Uh, but it's, it's the unstoppable mission of the church. If I were to add a, a second tagline, it would be, we are tracking the exponential progress and advancement of the gospel. Exponential means it's just magnified. It, there's no explanation for it. I don't know, we're in Acts chapter 15. I don't know how many years it's been since Acts chapter 1. Uh, I'm going to guess, well do you know Larry, do you have any? Yeah, I, I should have looked that up. I'll guess 20 years at the most. I've been here 28 years. in 28 years, our our church has changed, but I wouldn't call it exponential change. But in Acts, things are changing dramatically in such big ways. This goes back to what Jesus said in the first chapter. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. He's talking to his disciples. In Jerusalem, and in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. We're getting to the end of the earth in Acts chapter 15, because Paul and Barnabas have already gone out on their first missionary journey. They've taken the gospel to Gentiles primarily, and, and it's causing some problems or some controversy or some, a little bit of conflict. It's causing some questions. There's a lot going on. We're finding that this dramatic growth and spread of the gospel doesn't necessarily come without a certain disruption in people's thinking or traditions. So we're discovering that as we're working our way through Acts. So what the church does, the, a primarily Gentile church in Antioch, they send a delegation down to Jerusalem. And so you've got the elders of Jerusalem, the, the mother church, the home church, where it all started. And you've got the apostles, 11 at least. Well, I, don't, I assume they're all there. One apostle has already been martyred. But you've got the apostles in Jerusalem and the elders of the church. They're gathering together to decide, to answer this question, do Gentiles need to become Jewish proselytes in order to be saved? Now, I've kind of reduced the way it's asked several different places in Acts chapter 15. Do the men have to be circumcised? Do they have to obey the customs or the traditions of Moses or the law? Do they have to obey Mosaic law? They're answering this question. And the short answer that they're going to send back to the Gentiles, they've got an answer. It's several verses, exactly what that looks like. But the short answer to the question is no. No. The Gentiles don't have to become Jewish proselytes in order to be saved. Peter speaks up. He makes two very important points. Number one, he says, God cleansed their hearts by faith and gave them the Holy Spirit. Peter's the one that opened the door of salvation to the Gentiles when he went to Cornelius' household in Acts chapter 10, which then had to be explained in Acts chapter 11 back to the church in Jerusalem. And he made the point that, look, God cleansed their heart by faith. They didn't pledge... Anything to Moses, it's by faith they were saved, and God validated that or demonstrated that by giving these Gentiles the Holy Spirit, just like He gave to us at Pentecost. They didn't pledge anything to Moses or the traditions or the customs, and so they were saved by faith. He also makes the statement Gentiles are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. You've got grace and faith, they're saved by grace. They're saved by faith. So the answer to the question is no. Now here's a question for you. Is that good news? Yes. Second question. That's good news. Second question. Is that the gospel? Yes. 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 No. <laughs> Third question. Is that an aspect of the gospel? Three questions. So we're going to talk about the gospel a little bit at the beginning. Uh, And this largely, in fact, I had a discussion this week about the gospel uh, with one person in particular, but several people. Because I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about the gospel. Uh, It's not that we necessarily or people necessarily have it wrong. They just don't have it all right. And some of you are familiar with this because I've had this discussion more than once over the years. I have this every so often. So for some of you, it may be a review. It may be a refresher course. I think it's so worth revisiting because the gospel really is so important. And if I were to, if, I mean, it would be kind of fascinating if I handed out slips of paper and said in a couple sentences, or really, I think you could get it in some sense down to one, but, but write down the gospel. And I would be very interested to know what you write down. My guess is, maybe not our group, maybe I think highly of you. Especially if you've been here a long time. I think you've you probably got a bigger picture of the gospel. But I think if I were to do this across the board, I think most people, their gospel would be too small. It would be too small. So in some sense, this is a great lesson in that I know sometimes I'm teaching things that are difficult and And very intense, and you may be walking away saying, I'm not even sure what he just said. Uh, But hopefully, at least when we're talking about this aspect of the gospel, you can say, I got that. So, the gospel. Gospel means good news. Gospel means good news. So what is the good news? The Gentiles got good news that they do not have to become Jewish proselytes. Uh, they don't have to put themselves under the yoke of Moses, a burden that was too heavy for them to bear themselves. They just don't have to. So that's good news. Is it an aspect of the gospel? I think it is. I think it, I think it is. Is it the gospel? That would be stating too much. So what is the gospel? It's not just anything that's good that happens is the gospel. It's not a if the weather if we have a mild winter we don't get a whole lot of snow we have lots of a good number of warm days but just enough really bone chilling days that it kills the bugs and maybe some of the weeds and things that need killed you know that's not the gospel it's good at least in my opinion but it's not the gospel so what what good news constitutes the gospel probably. If you were to say, if I, if I were to say to you, turn to one passage that's the gospel, I hope a lot of you would turn to the passage I'm about to show you, because it really is that great of a passage. It reads this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance in the gospel what I also received. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, then to the twelve. And it goes on. So of first importance, what is the gospel? You can reduce it. You don't want to leave it there, but if you want to boil it down, it's Christ died and he was raised. The he died part is for our sins and he was buried. The he was raised is demonstrated by he appeared to Cephas, then the twelve, and so on it goes. But the, the heart of it is Christ died and he was raised again. Fun fact, I don't have this in my notes, so I don't know if I should now, like, I'm not sure what he just said. (laughs) But when it says Christ died for our sins, that for our sins part, that wasn't really understood initially when the church got started. That Christ died as a substitute for sins. It's not preached by Peter at Pentecost. It's not preached, I'm not sure it's ever preached through the entire book of Acts. They did preach Christ died. But the one you killed, God raised up on the third day. They preached his death and resurrection. They came to understand he died as a sacrifice that is a substitute for sinners. Peter clearly understood that later because he wrote it in his epistle. Paul clearly understood that. He wrote about it now in 1 Corinthians. He died for our sins. But it wasn't preached in Acts. They just know the one you killed... According to Wanda, being prophetically fulfilled, but God rose from the dead and He's going to be your judge someday. What Paul calls of first importance, this gospel that He preached, is in accordance with Scripture. This is not a new thing. Scripture has always indicated the Lord would send His chosen one, we know the Messiah. The Lord would send this one, we know him as the eternal Son of God, sends him, he dies according to Scripture. Isaiah 53, there's no clearer place that makes that plain, that he was stricken, smitten, and afflicted for his sheep. But he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Again, this is not a new surprising thing. Scripture has always indicated he would die and he would be raised. That's the gospel. But there's more to the gospel than what is of first importance. What is at the heart of the gospel? I could show you so many different passages, but the one that I want to draw your attention to is found in Revelation. It reads like this. Then I saw another angel flying high overhead, having the eternal gospel to announce to the inhabitants of the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He spoke with a loud voice. Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. The eternal gospel. What is the eternal gospel? The eternal gospel is God is God. God reigns. God is going to make things right. Now, all that is, is rooted in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the eternal gospel is he will receive his glory because his judgment will be executed. An eternal gospel in Revelation. Now, if I go back to Acts chapter 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen The gospel has something to say about the kingdom of God. God reigns. The eternal gospel. He goes on. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He, Jesus, said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And here's what we started off with in uh, when I started in Acts. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And that's what we're seeing, this exponential growth. The going out of the gospel. Going out of the gospel. So if I put all that together, here's a few fundamental principles about what is the gospel. The gospel, number one, there's no gospel apart from Christ Jesus. He's a, he is the core, the center... And all of God's purposes, both of salvation and of judgment, are rooted in that man. Who is holy man and holy God. Salvation and judgment in that one person. No gospel apart from Christ Jesus. Lots of religion apart from Christ Jesus. There is no gospel. So people... Over the face of God's earth can worship a variety of ways, but if there's no Christ Jesus, there's no gospel in it. That's the first importance. If you've got the first importance right, no matter how sincere you are in your expressions of worship, you have no gospel. Because that's first importance. He died according to scripture. He was raised according to scripture. That's the gospel. Second principle. Apart from Christ Jesus, there would still be news, news to announce, but it wouldn't be good news for sinners. There's still news, it's just not good news for people, for sinners. So what is that news? The news is this, the Lord is the almighty sovereign ruler of heaven and earth. His kingdom is forever. Now, that would be good news for the rest of creation, which was subject to sin because of our trespassing. But it wouldn't be good news for us apart from Christ. It's good news for us because by faith in Christ, I participate in the fact that God is mighty to deliver. He is strong to save all those who call upon the name of the Lord for salvation. That's good news. So there's always news. It's only good news in Christ. Number three, sometime after the beginning of the church at Pentecost, God reveals, quote, to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, a mystery component of the gospel. Now, by calling it a mystery component, this is not according to Scripture. You can't find this in the Old Testament. It was hidden previously. It is now revealed. So we're not talking about the death of Christ, we're not talking about the resurrection of Christ, nor are we talking about the, the gospel will go out to Gentiles, good news will go out to Gentiles. The mystery is something that was previously unknown, but revealed by God, by His Spirit, to His holy apostles and prophets. So now we're talking about something different. This is what we're learning about in Ephesians. That's why we're in Ephesians chapter 3 right now. So here are some propositions from last week where we compare the gospel and the mystery. Number one, this is all review, and if this doesn't make sense, if you go back to last week's message, uh, it should all fit together quite nicely. Gospel and mystery are not equivalent terms They are not synonymous. You haven't said exactly the same thing. Mystery is contained within the gospel, but they've always had the gospel. The gospel was announced in Genesis chapter 3. The gospel was announced to Abraham. The gospel was announced through the priestly system and the sacrifices. And the gospel was announced by the prophets. The gospel was announced by John the Baptist and Jesus. But the mystery wasn't announced until God revealed it, and that came later. Proposition two, gospel is the more comprehensive term. Mystery is a hidden feature or component contained inside the gospel. It was always part of the plan of God, but nobody knew it until God chose to reveal it in his own wisdom and according to his own timing. Number three, the gospel was promised and preached long before the mystery was made known. They are not at odds with one another. This has always been part of the cohesive, unified plan of God in bringing salvation to his own. The gospel was promised and preached long before the mystery was made known. So, in Ephesians chapter 3, if you're not there yet, page 977 in a pew Bible, and we're going to pick up, I think, with verse 5 or 6, we'll find out here, no, verse 4. And partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The the mystery is not that Gentiles would be saved. The mystery is that they would be saved in this equal basis and become part of this new body that we recognize or we call the church. That was the mystery. That was unknown. Jews always knew that Gentiles would be brought to salvation. But as equals... Apart from Moses, not having to subject themselves to any of that, simply saved by grace through faith, that was a mystery. That was a mystery. All three terms, I've got fellow, fellow heirs, members, and partakers, all three of those terms begin with the prefix sin, S-Y-N, not sin like you do something wrong. It's a prefix that means together with, together with. We have lots of, of words that use that same prefix which give the idea of combining things together. I've got a list of some of them. A synagogue, a Jewish synagogue. Uh, people are gathering together with one another in a Jewish synagogue for the, exp- for the purpose of of worship, of, of singing, uh, reading and singing psalms, of reading scripture, of some sort of a message. That's a synagogue, a gathering together with. You've got... Uh, syncretism. Syncretism is taking different ideas and combining them together. So that could be a very bad thing. If we as Christians take our beliefs and we combine them with other beliefs out there, and we combine them all together, we've mixed them all up together with, and we haven't improved what God gave us His gospel. We've actually we've actually contaminated it. We've got words like synchronize, where we make sure all of our timepieces are on the same page. We're all together. We all know what time we're supposed to end. I've got till a quarter to noon. Just synchronize your watch. I've got about 1108. You've got words like uh, synonym, words that you take them together. They have basically the same meaning. That's a synonym. uh, Synthetic. If you're wearing some sort of clothing that's made out of synthetics, you're taking different things together, you're combining them, and you've got a garment. So those three terms all start with the same prefix, which means together with. So the English Standard Version, because the Bible wasn't written in English, which I think everybody knows that. Sometimes there's some few groups, I'm not sure they know that. But it wasn't written in English, so in Greek, that's very clear. In the ESV, it's not very clear. And Paul means to be emphasizing the mystery, which is there's this together with that is a little bit missed by the way the English Standard Version renders it. And there are some English Bibles that do a better job than that. One of those would be the New International Version, which reads this way. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I mean, that's such a better rendering because it's emphasizing the togetherness of these three aspects, which is lost in the English Standard Version. Lest everybody go out and buy a new version, every English translation has strengths and weaknesses. It's just in this case, the ESV kind of did us a disservice in that it downplays the togetherness, and the NIV captures it nicely by translating that word together or including it in their English translation. Three times. So Gentiles enjoy all of this togetherness on what basis? And the answer is, well, it's through the gospel in Christ Jesus. If Christ doesn't come, Gentiles still need to become proselytes. If Christ doesn't open up a new and living way to a holy God where we don't need a priestly system that was was, uh, given to Moses, and we don't need Levitical priests or an Aaronic priesthood and animal sacrifices that need to be sacrificed year after year after day after day. If Christ doesn't come, yeah, we still need to put ourselves right right where the Jews are. But in Christ, Gentiles enjoy all this together withness only because of Christ without becoming Jews. This togetherness is a truth and a reality that Paul seemingly cannot emphasize too strongly or too often, and I mean particularly in the book of Ephesians. Paul uses that different words that always start with that same prefix all through Ephesians chapters 1 to 3. Well, mostly 2 and 3, I think. So I'm going, to break, I'm going to give you the big picture of what that looks like, which sometimes shows up in our English translation and sometimes doesn't. But the point is this. There is togetherness in Christ. There is, and so the church is meant to demonstrate the togetherness we have in Christ. It looks like this. You've got Paul breaking down a Gentile's relationship with God and a Gentile's relationship with Israel. In both cases, you've got a problem. Gentiles do not have a relationship with God, the God who created the heavens and the earth, and they do not have a relationship with Israelites, with Jews. Secondly, you've got a solution in both cases. And then thirdly, you've got a, a, a certain effect that is very similar to each other. So let's start off on the left side of the equation, a Gentile's relationship with God, which is outlined in the first three verses of Genesis chapter 2. So turn back in your Bible just a page, it reads like this, speaking of Gentiles. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's a problem for Gentiles. That's a problem. The solution comes in verses 4 to 6, and it, the essence of it is, but God made us alive. You've got a deadness problem, but God made us alive. Now, I'm not going to read all these verses because I've got so much I want to get through today. And by the way, I can make this available on a chart. Like, if you're really interested, like, I'm not sure I caught all that or I wanted to catch that. I want to see that broken down. I can uh, make a page available to you exactly what this looks like in case it's not entirely clear as I'm flashing up just the essence of it here. So the solution is this. God made us alive together with Christ. That together with Christ uses the prefix S-Y-N. The together with. The only reason why any dead sinner can be alive is because he is united with Christ. He's made alive by the power of God in Christ. Secondly, he's raised us up together with Christ... And thirdly, He seated us up together with Christ. Raised, or, or resurrected, made alive, resurrected and seated, all with Christ. It all hinges on Christ. That's of first importance. You take Christ out of the equation, you've got no life. You take Christ out of the equation, you're not raised up anywhere. You're stuck in your muck. You leave Christ out and you're not seated in the heavenly places with Christ either. It all hinges on Christ. That's the prefix sin in every single case. S-Y-N. Now let's flip over to the right side of the equation. The problem in verses 11 and 12 reads like this. Therefore, remember... This is the problem between Jews and Gentiles. Therefore, remember that one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Verse 12. Remember... That you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So God has solved the problem between himself and Gentiles in Christ, and now you've got a problem with Gentiles and Jews that also has to be solved. And so the solution comes in chapter 2, 13 and 14, verses 19 to 22, chapter 3 and verse 6. And just like we had over on the left side, but God made alive, the solution on the right side of the equation is, but now in Christ. Now in Christ. And you've got a whole bunch more togetherness that God accomplishes to solve the problem. It looks like this. You are fellow citizens together with the saints and members together with the household of God. I put those together withs in brackets because it's not translated that way in the ESV. I think the ESV just has you are fellow citizens with with the saints and members of the household of God. But there's a together withness there that's being missed. So your fellow citizens together with the Jews, Jewish believers, your members together with the household of God. You've also got, and I'm still in verses 19 to 22, Christ is the chief cornerstone. And then Paul says, in whom the whole structure being joined together with, Jews and Gentiles, faith in Christ together in one body. He also says, in Him you also are being built together with. So you've got this this temple, this building together, Jews and Gentiles together, all because Christ is at the root. You take Christ out, you've got a lot of problems. You put Christ in the middle, it all comes together nicely. And then in chapter 3 and verse 6, you've got, you are heirs together with Israel, You are members together of one body and you are shares together in the promise. All this togetherness. All because of Christ. All by God's design. The effect in chapter 2 and verse 7, this is the effect of God making dead sinners alive. Verse 7 of chapter 2 reads, So that... In the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is a story for the ages. This is a story that is not just going to be lived out here on earth. It's going to be a story that in the ages to come, he's going to show the immeasurable riches of his grace. This is a story that will never cease to be sung that God makes sinners alive in Christ by His grace through faith. Well, the effect of, of bridging this hostility between Gentiles and Israel is in chapter 3 and verse 10, which reads, So that, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. A story for the ages. A story for rulers and authorities, spiritual powers that we don't even know or see or recognize. That is a story that they are are witnessing in the church. What God has done in, in bringing Jews and Gentiles, male and female, slave and free, Republican and Democrat, pick your party. God's bringing it all together in this thing called the church. And the unity in the church is greater than any of the division we could have anywhere else. And all of God's creation is witnessing our feeble attempt at demonstrating what God has done. All right. So back to verse 7. Paul says of this gospel... I mean, we know Paul, we probably have high regard for Paul. He wrote 13 letters. They're included in the New Testament. I mean, Paul seems so wise on so many levels. Paul says, there is irony in this, that I was made a minister, though I'm the very least of all saints. Can you imagine? God would use me in this plan, this disclosing of his mystery... Paul can't get over it, because being made this minister, he's preaching to Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul says, regarding himself, he wanted nothing to do with Christ. He hated Christ. He hated Christians. He believed he was serving God rightly and fervently by arresting Christians, consenting to their death, bringing them back to Jerusalem. He wanted nothing to do with Christ. And now he's preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ. I mean, once in a while you find yourself doing something that you go back so many years, you, you can't imagine you are now that person. I mean, it's like, it's like the TV commercials, right? You become your parents. Like, I can't believe I'm doing what my parents did. Like, I'm, I'm dressing like them. I'm, you know, I've got the, some of the same personality traits. I'm saying some of the same things. I swore I would never be that person, and I am that person. Well, this is more dramatic than that, because this is something that only God could do. He took somebody who made it his personal mission to get rid of the sect of Christianity, and now he's preaching to Gentiles of all people, how his riches are unsearchable. There's nothing greater on, in heaven or on earth than what God has accomplished in this man called Jesus of Nazareth who died on a cross and the third day was raised again. So Paul's ministry, he says it, it's two things. Number one, I'm preaching and I'm bringing to light. Uh, John Stott makes the point, which is a very interesting point, That in verse 8, when he is preaching, he is preaching Christ to the Gentiles. In verse 10, or verse 9, when he's bringing to light, what he's bringing to light is the church. So, verse 8, what is Paul's message? It's Christ. In verse 9, what is Paul's message? It's look at the church. Look at what God has done. A story for the ages viewed by powers and authorities that we can't even imagine. Look at God's church in verses 8 and 9. So to the Gentiles, he's preaching the unsearchable riches. That word unsearchable means not to be tracked, traced, or followed. It's a, a common. It has the common prefix in Greek where you just add the letter A, which means it's a negative, which I talk about this all the time. So, But in case you missed it all those other times, a theist believes in God. Add an A to a theist, you've got an atheist. An atheist says, no God. A Gnostic says, I believe in knowledge, the special knowledge. Agnostic, you add an A to it, it's like, I don't know that you can know that there's a God. I'm not going to say there isn't, I'm just going to say you can't know. You add an A to something, you've got typical, you've got atypical. The opposite of typical. So this word means it's something that cannot be traced or searched or known. It comes from a root of what can be known. What can be traced. What can be followed. It's not used a lot, but I'll give you two examples. One is, in Romans chapter 4 and verse 12, it's talking about the faith of Abraham. And Paul is talking about Gentiles following in Abraham's faith. You can track that out. How was Abraham justified? It wasn't by his circumcision. He wasn't declared righteous because he obeyed circumcision, which came years after the fact. But Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. What is the message for Gentiles? Believe God. Believe in his Son, and it will be accounted to you for righteousness. You can follow in Abraham's faith. In 1 Peter 2, verse 21... Christ suffered unjustly, leaving you a pattern to follow in. You can follow in that pattern. You know what? Life isn't fair, right? If you're a parent, you've told your kids that. I've told my kids that. It's easy to tell your kids that, but when life isn't fair to me, I forget that. Because I want what's fair. I want what I think I've got coming to me. That's not just. Christ left us a pattern. When you suffer unjustly, you can follow in that pattern. You can trace it out. What did he do? What was his response? What did it look like? He gave us a pattern to follow. But the riches of Christ, you will never fathom the depths of the riches of Christ. Impossible. I don't care how long you've been a Christian. If you are not amazed by the grace of God in saving you and wooing you away from yourself and conforming you to the image of his son, then you're just not trying. And you need more humility. Because Christ's riches, or the riches that are found in Christ, are unsearchable. He also brings to light what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. This is very consistent with the idea that a mystery is previously hidden. It's not that they didn't try hard enough in the Old Testament. It's not if only anybody would have spent more time reading certain books of the Old Testament, they would have got the mystery. It was impossible to find until God chooses to reveal the mystery. But God did choose to reveal the mystery. He tells us in verse 5, it was revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Previously hidden, now brought to light. Paul is bringing it to light. He's one of his holy apostles. And the mystery was and is made known in the church and by the church. The church exists to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. That God can save Gentiles, put them into this entity called the church on an equal status where where whatever your background, you are one in Christ by virtue of faith and by virtue of his grace. Verse 10 reads, So that through the church the manifold wisdom of god might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the hev- holy heavenly places through the church not through your private devotions which i'm not saying you shouldn't do private devotions you should not through your prayers not through my obedience to whatever the command is it's through the church You are not demonstrating the grace and the beauty of what God has done in Christ if you're not with his church. It's inseparable. It's inseparable. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God. That idea of manifold means many uh, variegated Is that the right word? It's like it's taking a bouquet of flowers of different varieties and colors and styles and you put them all in a vase. I mean, you pick just one style of flowers and put it in a vase. If it's fresh and fragrant, it's beautiful. But if you take all manner of flowers and put them all in a vase, how much more beautiful is it? I mean, I'm assuming in the Old Testament, Jacob gave all of his sons a coat. But he gave Joseph a coat of many colors it was a special coat it was a it was a coat that demonstrated his love toward Joseph which favored him above the others it was seemed unjust right i mean it doesn't i'm not justifying that but that's what happened god in the church brings all manner of different backgrounds together saved by grace saved by faith in christ and no other way And the church is then there for all the world to behold. Look at what God has done in his church. The church is not an end to itself. The church serves a greater purpose of revealing God's wisdom, God's power, and God's glory. That is very plain in those first three chapters of of, uh, Ephesians. It's to the praise of his glorious grace, the working of his mighty power, the unsearchable riches of his grace, all and on and on it goes in those first three chapters. That's why the church exists. To demonstrate what God can do in His Son. At verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose that He has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. This is not an afterthought. It was a hidden thought. It was an unknown thought. But it wasn't an afterthought. This was always according to his eternal purpose. God's plan was never that the Gentile world would become Jewish. God's plan was that he would unite both as equals in this entity, this this body, this building, this temple called the church. And he revealed it to his apostles and the prophets. And he demonstrates it in the church's very existence. And so where we lack togetherness, we have a problem. We have a problem. Christ meant his church to worship together. It doesn't mean everybody within Macon County has to be in one spot, but it means we recognize the church is made up of of different types of people, and they need to worship together as much as possible. It's, It's not right for me to say, I just worship with my family in my house. The church is bigger than that. It's bringing different backgrounds together and to demonstrate what God does. So I ask you, Paul says, this is where he started in verse 1. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is for your glory, which is your glory. There's a relationship in Scripture between suffering and glory. And Paul is concerned when he started chapter 3, he's concerned that his imprisonment, his suffering, will distress the believers. But Paul recognizes the connection between suffering and glory. And my suffering is your glory. It's brought you to faith in Christ. It's demonstrating what God has done in Christ. And Paul's okay with that. Paul's okay with that. Well, I went through those first 13 verses pretty fast. I think I could have paused over some other things, but I'll give you a chance for comments and questions. Uh, Sarah. Precisely. I mean, all, I can be amazed at, I'm amazed at things all the time. I love looking at clouds. When I lived in the country, I loved looking at stars. Now I'm left with clouds, which clouds are good, but I wish I still had the stars. I can still see a few stars, but not like when I lived in the country. You know, the ocean is powerful. Look at the ocean, the waves rolling in. I didn't see the ocean until I was like, until I started dating my wife in college, and so I went out to Delaware, and I'd never been to the ocean, so I went out to Delaware, and I had to taste it like it was really salty. I'd never tasted salt water. All I'd ever gone to was Lake of the Woods up in Muhammad. You know, gone to swimming pools. It was chlorinated. But the ocean was salty. You know, but you see things like that, and they're so powerful. But all of creation, creation out there that we, a realm we don't understand, they're not like, look at the stars. You know, look at the oceans. Look at that little teeny, like, speck of a planet in the universe. You know, what they're looking at is the church. Look at what God has done for those people. Jews and Gentiles. Brought them together. Made them one in Christ. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. Somebody else? Joe? <clears throat> so in the Old Testament, is it that they don't even know there is a mystery, or they realize there is a mystery, but they can't it? That's a good question. I'm going to go with, I don't, think, I don't think they were looking for a mystery. I don't think they thought, I think they knew how the plan was going to work out. Like, I think they knew this is how it's going to work out. And and then the mystery was unfolded, and they're like, it's like, like, I, I sometimes wonder, like, everybody's got their plan for the ages. Like, how's how's it all going to wind up, Christ coming back in power and glory, and what's your timetable look like? And, and I think I've got my, you know, I've refined it over the years, and I'm thinking, I think I'm right there. I think I'm right there. i got to figure it out, you know. And I think it's not going to, I think it probably is going to be, Nobody's chart is exactly right. <laughs> and it may not be because there's a mystery to be revealed. It's just because we're such flawed people. And we're so committed to our structures and the way that we've cate- constructed Scripture that when, God, when Christ actually does it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to disrupt everybody's plan. I, that's my guess. So I don't know that they were looking for a mystery. I don't, I don't think they thought that, that the, what they did understand, like, this isn't going to work. I thought they thought it would work. But as it turns out, God had this thing, this this aspect, this eternal purpose that he would unfold at the appropriate time, which would bring even more glory to himself, which Paul makes very clear in Romans. It's going to be very clear that it has nothing to do with our efforts and merit and works. Gentiles who weren't even trying, weren't even looking, are going to be justified by faith. And in turn, that's going to make the Jews recognize eventually they will be justified by faith alone as well. No merit, no works, not their own effort, and God will receive all the glory because it was, it's, always, it's entirely in what he does in his son. Somebody else? So here's kind of the plan moving forward. Um, now I'm halfway through chapter 3. So, I mean, who knows? Maybe I could do the end of chapter 3 by next week. At the worst, two weeks. But uh, maybe even next week, and then it'll set us up for a couple weeks of something more uh, devoted to Christ's incarnation, Christ's birth, Christmas, a uh, couple weeks of that. Then we can start chapter 4 going starting next year, uh, which then turns the corner from all that God has done, to now in chapters 4, 5, and 6, what are we supposed to do in light of what God has done? So I need to finish chapter 3. Two weeks at the most. Who knows? Maybe one week. I mean, you can pray however you see fit. (laughs) But either way, I think we'll have a couple weeks then of of Christmassy themes before we turn the corner to chapter 4. So for the Lord's Supper, this is from the Holman Christian Standard Bible. I kind of like the way it put it. This is according to his eternal purpose accomplished in the Messiah, Jesus our Lord. In him we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. When Christians participate in the Lord's Supper, we can do this. I mean, I'm in Leviticus right now because I get...